Welcome to the ADHD Decoded Podcast, your roadmap to understanding the ADHD brain. Here we offer you brain hacks to inspire and empower you to take charge of your life. Whether you were recently diagnosed, have been coping for years, think you might have ADHD, or are wanting to learn more about the ADHD brain in general, then this podcast is for you. I am your host, Amanda Fisher, and this is brought to you by the Kaleidoscope Society. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 16 years old. Since then, my diagnosis is something that I have channeled into a passion for empowering others with disabilities through special education outreach, and now this podcast. I am currently a senior majoring in communication studies at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. This podcast was born out of a partnership with the Kaleidoscope Society and our mutual desire to empower others with ADHD and give you the tools to understand your brain better. In this first episode, we have invited Dr. Michelle Frank to help us understand the ADHD brain and decode the basics for us. Dr. Frank is a writer, speaker, and clinical psychologist specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of adults with ADHD. She takes an empowering and strengths-based approach to help her clients live fully and successfully with their unique set of strengths and challenges. She currently works at a private practice in Denver, Colorado, and recently came out with her new book entitled A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD. So without further ado, I am pleased to introduce to you all Dr. Frank. Hello. (laughs) Hi there. How are you? Good. It's so great to have you on the show with us on our very first episode of ADHD Decoded. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be part of this. I think this is a beautiful project. So Dr. Frank, you've dedicated your career to helping those with ADHD. What makes you so passionate about the topic? The ironic thing is at one point I wasn't so so passionate about it <laughs> because ADHD has impacted my own life and my family's life to a great degree. And I am one of those women who flew under the radar for a lot of my life because I did well in school and, you know, never mind the forgetfulness or the extreme impulsivity or the emotional sensitivity. It was sort of like growing up, well, yeah, we think you kind of have some ADHD traits, but it wasn't really taken that seriously because I did well enough, right? And that's the story of so many women. I started doing work professionally with clients and I realized like ADHD is one chronic condition where if you can help people live well with it and you can remove some of the barriers to some of the functioning challenges, you don't just help them lead a better life. They can soar. I mean, the things that people with ADHD are capable of, oftentimes they're twice exceptional, so exceptionally gifted in some way, and exceptionally challenged in their ADHD ways. So it's very rewarding to work with ADHD because once you can break through some of the barriers, and there are many, we'll talk about those later, you can really see people just soar and break free into who they really are. And I think that's really, really cool. So. Mm -hmm. That's what keeps me going. Thank goodness for all that you do, <laughs> Dr. Frank. So that brings us to our next question. Could you tell our listeners the bare bones of what ADHD is? Yeah, I mean, I will do my best. 
to not recite a novel here or a textbook here. <laughs> so ADHD is a highly genetic, chronic, neurobehavioral, meaning brain-based condition. It looks a little different for everyone who has it. You know, there's no one single prototype <laughs> of, of ADHD symptoms, but there is a cluster of them. I think it's important to understand that years and years of neuroscience have shown us that there are very real, very valid differences in the ADHD brain as compared to a neurotypical brain. And by neurotypical, I mean people who fall more within that typical range of functioning and, and don't have ADHD, don't have autism spectrum. People with ADHD are considered neurodivergent or neurodiverse. So I'll use those two terms a lot. So for people with ADHD, what we see is that there are differences in the way that the brain regulates some of the very basic functions that help us navigate the world every day, make sense of stimuli coming our way, and help us govern our behaviors, especially in light of future-oriented goals or thinking ahead. So it's a condition that impacts self-regulation in a lot of ways. There's differences in the reward pathways. So people with ADHD tend to experience motivation or activation differently. They tend to have difficulty responding to rewards or consequences that are far away in time that doesn't really register because they're, and they tend to be kind of stimulation seeking sometimes. And that's all because that reward pathway works differently. There are also differences in the prefrontal cortex which is the frontal lobe, the forehead part of your brain, and what are globally called executive functioning skills. It's a broad term. It's an umbrella term for a bunch of different skill sets. So things like getting going, putting your foot on the gas, but also putting on the brakes and sort of that dance that you need to always be engaged in between the two. Another executive functioning skill would be working memory, the ability to hold something in your memory for a short amount of time and use it. So people struggling with working memory might forget that they have their laundry in the wash. They might go to Home Depot and forget what they're there for. They might forget to call somebody back, but they might have great memory about other things. So it's not global memory, it's working memory. And then there are a few other categories. Scientists go back and forth with how they define executive functioning skills, but some others are the ability to sequence your behavior over time you know, and have goal-oriented behavior, sustaining effort and attention, distractibility and attention, tuning out things that are happening outside of you, but also tuning out unnecessary thoughts or sensations like the tag on your shirt, tuning things out so that you can tune in. And again, we have another dance between attending to something and not attending to extraneous stimuli. So you can see there's a lot of back and forth where the ADHD brain would struggle. All of these different subsets of skills are like two sides of the same coin. And for a neurotypical brain, they're regulated pretty well. You know, they, can, they might not want to do something, but they can still make themselves do it. And they can then make themselves stop if they need to transition into the next activity. You know, they can tune out extraneous noise from like, you know, outside the window down the block and tune into what's happening right in front of them. And then if a baby cries in the other room, quickly turn their attention and transition to that. They're able to sort of flow 
Whereas the ADHD brain has trouble with the stop and go. And that comes down to some issues around hyper and hypo arousal in the brain, which for a lot of people with ADHD tends to feel true. Like they feel like they're zero to a hundred, they're on or they're off. And interestingly, per the neuroscience, in some ways that's true. So Mm -hmm. those are just a few things that are going on there. We knew that 80% of people with ADHD or more have a direct genetic link. ADHD is more hereditable than anxiety disorders. It is almost as hereditable as height. So if you have one parent with ADHD, there's a 50% chance that a child will have it is another way to look at that equation. And so we've pinpointed a lot of genetics related to it. And those genetics cause changes in brain structure and function But then our environment plays an additional role. And scientists now are looking at what's called epigenetics or the impact of how environment plays into the genes we have and how those two things are related. And so that's the next journey for science is to say, okay, well, what's the role of the combination of environment and genetics and how does that impact how ADHD presents? Wow. So you covered a lot of territory yeah. there. One thing that really resonated for me was when you were talking about the dance that ADHDers typically need to do. I mean, it's just the story of our lives. It's like we're in this dance. And even from my own personal experience, like the other day, I came up to my room to grab something. I was working down in the basement. And when I got up to my room, I was like, what did I even come up here to get? And so yeah. I totally can. Yeah, just think of yeah. my own personal experience and that whole working memory thing is certainly a struggle. Another question I have for you, Dr. Frank, is I remember when I was first starting out my ADHD journey, I would hear the terms ADHD and ADD used interchangeably. Could you explain the difference between those two terms and are they the same diagnosis? <laughs> so basically, ADHD it is a misnomer in a lot of ways anyways because it's not always a lack of attention. Sometimes it's a surplus. And not everyone who has ADHD is hyperactive. So they've been trying for decades to come up with the right language to describe this subset of symptoms that impact functioning for folks in this very certain ways. In the 80s and 90s, originally it was hyperkinesis. It was all about hyperactivity. And then it moved into ADD, which was attention deficit disorder. That was the diagnostic label like in the medical and psychiatric diagnostic handbooks. And then they changed it in more recent versions of those handbooks to ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So it's really just that people got used to saying ADD, then the diagnostic label changed to ADHD. It is referring to the same thing. However, some people still refer to the predominantly inattentive type of ADHD as ADD. They just like the H out of there Mm -hmm. because they don't have the hyperactivity. However, even when you had ADD, you would still do an additional modifier. So you would say, you know, with or without hyperactivity. Now the way they do it is they break it into subtypes, predominantly inattentive presentation, predominantly impulsive, hyperactive, and combined. So It really comes down to diagnostic terminology that has changed over the years. What I think we'll see is yet another change probably down the line that does include a little bit more of what we know around the executive functioning dysregulation issue. So part of it is just how the name has changed over the years. I think it's important too to note that 
ADHD has been around in the research for literally millennia. It is not a new diagnosis. Hmm. Since we're talking about uh, labels there, I will add that because that's a huge myth that's out there that ADHD is, is new and made up. Now, it's, it's been in the literature for years. Its name has changed. While there are many difficulties that come with living with ADHD, what should an ADHDer be proud of? You know, I think everyone should find a lot of things that they're proud of, but for people with ADHD, it's really hard sometimes to find the bright side. However, a lot of our challenges are, like I said earlier, one side of a double-sided coin. So distractibility in one environment is problematic, but in another, maybe a brainstorming meeting, maybe a, a art studio or a music studio, distractibility looks like mind wandering and mind wandering is creativity, right? The ability to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. In one space, a behavior might look impulsive, but on the other, like a first date, it might look like a spontaneous event or like nature walk or picnic or what have you. So it's two sides of the same coin. And we have to always be looking at what are my challenges, but also what are my strengths and try to find the balance. So we see ourselves as whole people. Yeah, it's definitely finding that balance. You know, a lot of times my family will affirm me like, oh my gosh, Amanda, because I'm a dancer and choreographer and they'll affirm me like, oh my gosh, Amanda, that dance that you choreographed was so awesome. But then sometimes my creativity and my spontaneity for ideas don't always come at the most opportune mm-hmm. times, to put it lightly. Yeah. And yeah, it's all about finding that balance, which I'm sure our listeners will be able to relate to. Um, One thing you can do, Google VIA Strengths Survey. And it's a, it's a character strength survey. And that's a great place to start. And you might be surprised to find just what you're saying. In one place, it's creativity. And in another, it's a, it's a challenge. We'll definitely link that in our show notes so yeah. our listeners yeah. can take a look at that. I think I've done that before. And it's a great resource. So another question I have is, how does ADHD behaviorally look different in girls as opposed to boys? So what we notice in girls traditionally is that girls and women tend to present with what we call internalizing symptoms versus externalizing. This has to do, I think, with socialization in a lot of ways, but basically girls tend to go inward. So their anger goes inward, their hardships go inward, they experience more depression and anxiety. Boys, however, have a little more room and are even expected to act out, right? And so we see that pattern emerge in ADHD, where boys with ADHD are more likely to exhibit some disruptive behaviors at home or in the classroom. Certainly, some girls do too, especially if they have combined or hyperactive type. But more girls present with more of the daydreamy and attentive type ADHD. And some of that restlessness that's externalized for boys goes internal for girls. So In other words, they know it's not really acceptable to show that. And so that restlessness may be translated into anxiety or inner discomfort. And with boys, you might see it more as literally climbing walls. In general, women and girls are more likely to have the inattentive presentation of ADHD than the combined or hyperactive type. However, we're still learning. Women can also present with combined type or hyperactive. I have combined type myself. Mm-hmm. Same with me as well. Yeah. I remember when I was initially doing more and more reading about 
what it means to have ADHD. I remember when I was reading this book and it explained for the first time why women are so misdiagnosed or undiagnosed and ADHD usually doesn't come by itself. It comes with other things like anxiety and depression. Fortunately, that's not the case for for myself, but I know it's the case for a lot of other people. And just growing up, I remember having those guys in my classroom and everyone could always point a finger like, oh, that kid, Timmy, totally has ADHD, but they would never in a million years put their finger on, oh, Amanda, she totally has Mm -hmm. ADHD because it just totally looks differently and how we act it out. Yeah, it really does. And there's a lot of bias too. It's getting better, but there are plenty of research studies where you give teachers vignettes with a case study of a student presenting with all the symptoms and you change the name Jane to Johnny, they'll refer the boy to treatment and not the girl. Hmm. So there's still stigma out there. And part of that is science's fault in the first place because the majority of research was done on white, hyperactive, school-age boys. And that's a bigger systemic issue, but certainly it's played out in the ADHD world where we have a lot of women with later-in-life diagnoses. And what do we know about the importance of early diagnoses? That basically prognosis and outcomes are way better the earlier someone knows what's going on and gets some support around it and helps to normalize their experience so they don't feel like it's a big character flaw. And when people, women aren't diagnosed until later in life, they carry so much of this like shame and this, this, this burden of feeling like it's just them, like who they are as people. So if we can break that down and start identifying girls and women and do some awareness projects like Kaleidoscope Society, you know, does these advocacy and awareness programs, we can really save so many young women's self-esteem. And improve their life outcome in general. Oh, way. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just so important to know that like you're never alone and there are so many resources out there like Kaleidoscope Society, of course, and ADDA and there's just so many resources out there. Thankfully, more resources out there for women. A lot of times it's the moms who have a child who they think might have ADHD. And then they're like, wait a second, all of these symptoms are in my son or in my daughter. I think I have them too. And so when they get diagnosed much later in life, it's like they're mourning a loss of what their life could have been had they been diagnosed sooner. Oh, yes. You hit the nail on the head completely. What are some of the added challenges that someone with ADHD might face besides the brain-based symptoms? So I talk a lot about ADHD as an iceberg where, you know, the top, what people see is really a a tiny percentage of the, the behavioral manifestation of the symptoms. They might see the fidgetiness, the forgetfulness, being late, disorganization, stuff like that, the tuning out. But the felt experience is underneath it. And that's, a, that's ADHD life. That is things like poor self-esteem, sense of learned helplessness, or that I can't voice at the back of your head that just won't stop. Years of experiencing perceived failures, sometimes real failures, but ADHDers are really great at blaming themselves for things. But years of feeling different, misunderstood, like they're not living up to their potential, feeling like they're too much and not enough and that something is very wrong with them, really degrade self-concept over time and degrade trust in self. And those things also get in the way of feeling 
competent and capable and worthy, there's a huge emotional legacy tied to ADHD life. You know, ADHD can also impact relationships. There's a lot of loss involved, literally from lost wallets and keys and (laughs) favorite earrings and, you know, whatever, to lost friendships, to lost jobs, to lost dreams, especially for those who go undiagnosed or don't have the right support systems in place. So unfortunately, it's it's really dark and cold and, and hard down there under the iceberg. But what I've noticed is that when you're around other people who get it, when you listen to podcasts like this, when you read about it and you realize I'm not alone, there's so much freedom that happens and you suddenly feel like you can swim again. And you can learn how to navigate those waters. The hardest part, I think, is feeling alone with it. And like, it's just you and you're broken. There's something wrong. So that's the other half of ADHD that most people don't think about. I know you also mentioned co-occurring conditions. And about 50% of people or more with ADHD have depression or anxiety. About 50% struggle with addiction as well. So there's a lot of dual diagnosis or overlapping symptoms and overlapping conditions. And so most people with ADHD tend to have something else going on. And sometimes that's a chicken or the egg sort of problem. Okay, if you have untreated ADHD and you haven't been able to get your work in on time or file your taxes or you keep forgetting to text your friends back, you're going to get anxious and you're going to get down on yourself. So ADHD life itself comes with a healthy, (laughs) unhelpful dose of anxiety and depression. But because the brain is an ecosystem, it's also common for those things to co-occur on a more biological level. So you see higher rates of anxiety disorders, depression, addiction, stuff. And I don't just mean substances that could be like some of those more compulsive, impulsive issues like shopping, pornography, things like that, eating, binge eating. There's a higher rate of bulimia and binge eating disorder in the ADHD community. So there's a lot of overlap. It seems like ADHD is this cloud that if you already have those other struggles with depression or anxiety, or OCD, or what have you. ADHD is just that cloud that's going to make all of those things worse. But at the root, it is the main culprit for just making everything else seem like it's out of control, right? Absolutely. And so it's really important that if you have more than one thing going on, that you work carefully with a provider, you know, a psychiatrist or a therapist that understands ADHD to work out like, what, what do we target first? Because sometimes you know, if you're so depressed, you're not getting out of bed, you're not showering, we need to deal with the depression first. However, if we don't at some point deal with ADHD, we're never really going to get you to your highest level of functioning. And for some people, it's okay, if we treat the ADHD first, then the anxiety and depression come along and work themselves out because all of these other things are falling in line in your life. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously going to look so different for each person. So Dr. Frank, in your book, A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD, you talk about a different paradigm for ADHD treatment. Can you explain that briefly to our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. We, we use the word radical kind of sarcastically in a way because <laughs> it really shouldn't be, but we really believe in treating the whole person. Mm. Sari and I, Sari Solden, my co-author, 
and my business partner for many years and my mentor who wrote the first book on women with ADHD about 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. Basically, our approach is that strategies like time management and organization are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And in fact, we found that a lot of even, you know, treating clinicians tend to collude with a client's deep longing to be fixed in a way that makes the problem worse. So our work focuses on doing that deep dive, going under the iceberg and figuring out how to help someone live really well based on their unique strengths and challenges. And it isn't just about shoring up the deficiencies. There's only so much of that you can do. You also have to expand your strengths. You also have to live a satisfying life even with ADHD because it is a chronic condition. So the goal shouldn't be necessarily to pass more often as neurotypical, right? I don't want my clients to just get better at masking. I want my clients to feel like they're living whole, fulfilling lives as authentic human beings with a sense of agency in the world. And living with a condition like ADHD can really sabotage that. And so we take more of a whole person, humanistic approach in that sense to helping people live well with this condition. Mm -hmm. So what are the steps that someone should take if they think they have ADHD or know somebody who might have it? You mentioned ADA before, ADD.org. There's a screener you can take. I think it's based on the one put out by the World Health Organization. And so you can take that screener and just sort of see like, do I meet criteria at all? Could this be a thing? And then take that screener with you to to your doctor. I highly recommend people meet with a psychologist, a psychotherapist, or a psychiatrist if they suspect they have ADHD and go over your history, go over your symptoms. Uh, You might be asked to fill out some rating scales about your symptoms, the frequency and intensity of them, but not everyone who needs a diagnosis necessarily needs full neuropsychological testing. Some people do, but not everyone does. So it's important to start small and just get in to meet with someone who has worked with ADHD before, again, a psychiatrist, therapist, or psychologist, and review your symptoms and go over them and talk about your history. And I often, if my clients are okay with it, I'll talk to someone else in their life if they have a hard time sort of reflecting on their past or childhood and talk about it. That's where you start. Mm-hmm. And I think I was reading it in Siri Solden's book a while ago. And one of the things that she mentions is that meeting with a professional is just one phase of treatment. And treatment also involves the medication. And mm-hmm. it's a multidimensional treatment plan that an individual should take in order to really live their life to the full, right? Yeah, there's also, you know, the layers of, you know, are meds right for me and what does that look like? Definitely learning some of the strategies to support the brain-based differences, doing that deeper dive into self-concept. Education is huge. So attitudemag.com, obviously Kaleidoscope has a million amazing resources available. ADD.org does as well. And just learning, learning as much as you can is really healing and validating and then being around other people who get it whether that's virtually or in person, if there's local meetup groups, or if you want to start a meetup group for people with ADHD, that is so healing, so healing. So I encourage everyone to provide that to their community if possible. 
So how can someone begin to make peace with their diagnosis if they've been already diagnosed? I think it's important to remember that you are the same person walking out of that initial appointment as you are walking in. You just have more information now. So the diagnosis is helpful in as much as it explains a bit about what's going on, what the root causes might be, and what we know to be true per the science about interventions at work. But it's only one part of who you are. And we don't want to reduce ourselves to one part of who we are, be that part good or bad or in the middle. I mean, we don't want to reduce ourselves to only one thing. So maintaining that yes and perspective. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have ADHD and and then list all the other things that you are, all the other ways you matter, all the other strengths you have. It's easy to just stare down the rabbit hole of what's wrong, especially because that's reinforced in our culture to continue on this like personal fix-it mission. But at some point you have to say, okay, like I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to continue to have some challenges. That's, that's part of this. But who am I beyond it so that you see yourself as whole? Mm-hmm. I found like once you're able to accept that you have ADHD and you just embrace it and you even just have humor about yeah. your, your oh, condition, God, yeah. yes. which can make the world of a difference. And once you're able to communicate that with your family and your friends, they can laugh about it with you. And so it's not something that's so begrudging and negative. Like it's something that actually enlivens what it is to be you and your family and what it is to be you and your friend group. And even in the workplace too, which is a whole nother podcast. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Sense of humor definitely helps. And, you know, acceptance doesn't mean you have to love it. You know, you don't have to see it as a gift or a curse. It just, it just is. And so that acceptance piece is big. I just want to thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I am sure that your wisdom will greatly bless our listeners and has helped them tremendously and hopefully answered some of their questions that they've had lingering in the back of their heads. This is what the ADHD Decoded podcast is here to do. So I just want to thank you again so much for your time. You are so very welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the ADHD Decoded podcast brought to you by the Kaleidoscope Society. Please share it with your family and friends. Together, we can dispel stigma and empower each other. Follow at Kaleidoscope Society on Instagram for upcoming podcast postings and join our community at kaleidoscopesociety.com. This is your host, Amanda Fisher. Until next time.